Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fracoso. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Sam. God damn. It seems like we narrowly averted authoritarianism. How does it feel? I'm about 10 pounds lighter today. You know, after a protracted election, Vice President Biden became President-elect Biden and Senator Kamala Harris made history as the first woman VP this country has ever seen. It took way too damn long. It was way too damn close, but it happened. And this man's reign is over. The chapter is closed. But President Trump will not disappear. The enthusiasm for this man will not vanish. Our problems are not solved today. But I'm hopeful they can at least be acknowledged in a Biden presidency. Problems around climate change, economic inequality, systemic racism, the pandemic. We have lots of issues in this country, and the first step to solving any problem is admitting there is one. For four years, we have lived under a president in denial. Today, we have chosen someone different. He is not perfect. He was not my first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, or ninth choice, but the man has acknowledged the problems. And, in my view, that's a much better position to be in than living under someone whose ego comes before our issues. 
As we close out 2020, we'll be sitting with a handful of unique voices to help us unpack our past so that we can understand our present and then try to imagine a better future. That may sound lofty, it probably is, but I think it's possible. We will also be returning to our scheduled programming. You know, conversations about art, about film, literature, music. I believe folks like Matthew McConaughey and Ethan Hawke will be joining us to do some of that. Because I like to reinvest in these subjects again. I'd like to care about movies again, for Christ's sake. I mean, in this period, in the pandemic, I don't know about you, I've had a hard time reading. I've had a hard time watching. The only thing I can listen to is The Daily, and as much as I like Michael Barbaro, my God, I need a break. So we will offer that refuge in pockets when and where we can as we try to move away from this upsetting chapter in American history. But, and there is a but, I'm sorry, but we can't just move away, can we? This is a time to celebrate, but it's a modest celebration. There's a lot of work to be done. I know we want rest. I know we want that refuge, but we aren't there yet. And it's voices like Noam Chomsky that compels me to share this message. Even at age 91, Professor Chomsky continues to fight, continues to call out the serious issues we face as a country in transition. I understand some of you may want a lighter dialogue today. That's okay. This conversation with Chomsky will still be here for you whenever you're ready. We have a lot of progress to make, a lot of battles to fight, and elections, as Chomsky is fond of saying, are just the beginning. So, why don't we start there? From the beginning. Alright, I'm just doing a sound test. Can you just say, what did you have for breakfast today? Uh, what did I have for breakfast? Dry cereal because I couldn't find any milk. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's a metaphor for how this week has gone. And how the next week will go. Let's start there because there has been this multi-state uncertainty around this election where even as we tape on Friday afternoon, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, Alaska, North Carolina have not been called. It has created this kind of national unease. Perhaps that unease existed since the start of the pandemic, or perhaps it was there once Donald Trump became President Trump in 2016. How have you been seeing this historic week in America? Well, I think as far as the election is concerned, the uh, outcome was clear before the voting. Namely, it was a huge victory for President Trump and the Republican Party. I mean, the very fact that a figure like that could appear as a legitimate candidate after, to take the most obvious, after having killed tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans, 
and that's the least of his crimes. That's already astonishing. And uh, what actually happened on November 4th, however the details come out, was just a further immense victory for extreme reaction. Uh, it's shocking that, first, that he was able to compete. Secondly, that he got almost half the votes. Trump increased his vote in virtually every demographic category, even black women. The one category in which his vote declined was actually white men, which he wins overwhelmingly. But there was a slight decline there. Nevertheless, the white vote remains Republican, as it has been ever since Nixon. The Nixon Southern strategy has never ended. Opposition to civil rights, racism, xenophobia, they sell to a large part of the population. Now, this is not just Trump. Uh, we should remember that although Trump has succeeded uh, brilliantly in tapping every poisonous undercurrent of American society, racism, xenophobia, uh, white supremacy, he's done it like a genius. He has also tapped something else which is understandable and even justified, namely the anger and resentment among what are called in the categories less educated whites, meaning uh, working people. They're furious. They've been dealt a very serious blow over the past 40 years. The Democrats offer them nothing. Uh, they abandoned the working class a generation ago by the time of Carter. Uh, the Republicans offer them even less, but they do have rhetoric. So Trump can stand up and denounce the elites while he's serving the rich in the corporate sector with uh, dedication. And that offers at least something to people. On top of that, there's the neoliberal version of globalization of the international economy, which was crafted by people like Bill Clinton, carried forward by people like Barack Obama, and of course the Republicans. And it's structured in such a way as to set American working people in competition with the lowest wage countries in the world with no worker protection, no environmental rules, and at the same time offer extensive protections to the rich and the powerful. So the exorbitant patent monopolies of the World Trade Organization, they're the reason why drug prices are in the stratosphere and why you can't, you can't get them. This is just massive. It's one of many massive gifts to the very rich in the corporate sector. While the poor, of course, are forgotten, the working class and the middle class just get shafted constantly, and they're angry. They may not know the details, but they can see it in their lives. A majority of the population live from paycheck to paycheck. And meanwhile, the top 0.1% since Reagan have raised their share of the country's wealth from 10% to 20%. That's 0.1% of the population. 
Well, for the rest, it's stagnation, decline, uncertainty. Uh, so sure, there's anger. And Trump, who's a very skilled con man, can stand up and say, I love you. I'm attacking the elites who are doing this to you. And meanwhile, stabbing you in the back. It's a, it's a good trick. And yet, even despite your very serious criticisms of neoliberalism, you did ultimately decide to vote for Joe Biden. No, I decided to vote against Donald Trump. In our system, there's only one way of doing it as a technicality, and that is to push the button for the Democrats. But I don't even see how this can be discussed. The case for voting against Trump was so overwhelming that it shouldn't even be a topic for discussion. The fact that it is a topic for discussion reveals how much the left has lost of its traditional understanding of real politics. For the traditional left, elections are a kind of an interlude in a life of real political activism. So you take off a couple minutes, you decide if it's worth participating, usually means voting against somebody. If it is, you take off the time to do it. If it isn't, you do something else, but you go back to work. That's the traditional left. Not today. Today, there's a laser-like focus on elections, particularly in 2020. It is so obvious how threatening and dangerous a Trump presidency is that there shouldn't even be any discussion of it. Take something that's barely discussed, climate, environmental catastrophe. I mean, that overwhelms everything else. Trump is racing consciously towards cataclysm. What else is there to discuss? Then a Biden presidency, at least you have an opportunity to do something. Your new book, Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, explores the nature of climate change and its relationship to capitalism. Assuming climate change is part of a Biden presidency, or rather a concern of the Biden presidency, in all indications, say it will be, how do we make this Green New Deal a nonpartisan deal? How do we make the case in terms that are not inherently political and divisive? Not easy. We have had a president, corporate media, echo chamber for the president, Fox News, Breitbart, Rush Limbaugh, constantly telling the population, the part of the population that listens to them, that's almost half the population, telling them, you can't believe scientists, they're liars, they're deceitful. The global warming is a scam. Uh, nothing's happening. Uh, it'll get cooler tomorrow, just like Trump said while he was observing the fires in the West. That's drummed into people's heads as an effect. In the United States, 20% of Republicans think you can trust scientists. 20%, almost half, think that. Uh, Global warming, even if it's taking place, is not an urgent problem, and humans probably don't contribute to it. You're struggling against beliefs that are deeply established, 
and are constantly reinforced from the White House and the echo chamber. And how can it be not a partisan issue in that case? There's a huge educational effort to be undertaken among liberals as well. Just yesterday, I happened to be listening to NPR, and there was a section, this is the liberal extreme of the media, uh, there was a um, section on a, an analysis of a vote, interesting vote, on the South Texas-Mexico border, uh, counties that had been solidly democratic for a century. Uh, a lot of Mexican-Americans, poor working people, totally democratic. The Republicans didn't even have a party organization there. They voted for Trump. First time in a century the Republicans won anything. And the analyst explained that the reason was because of a gaffe, a terrible gaffe that Biden made in the last debate, for which he's been very widely criticized by the liberal media too. Mm. What he said was, we have to do something to stop destruction of the human species. That's the gaffe not the words he used. The words he used, which have the same meaning, are we have to think about transitioning to a non-fossil economy. Anybody who doesn't understand that is on a suicide pact, but it's a gaffe. You're not allowed to say it. You read the analyses in the press today about how centrist Democrats are condemning the left Democrats for their rotten performance everywhere. They're blaming them because they call for things like a Green New Deal. In other words, they're calling for trying to save the human species from total destruction. That's a terrible error. Can't do that. What does that tell you about what's called liberal America? It's funny you, you mentioned this because yesterday on a call with Democratic House Representatives, Abigail Spanberger of Virginia, widely criticized the Democratic Party for underperforming and blamed a great majority of that underperformance on language around the Green New Deal, the defund police movement, Black Lives Matter, socialism, just the term socialism, regardless of its context. And she said, we need to no longer speak of these things if they do not represent what we want to do in Congress, which I found as a young person uh, a little disheartening, but not surprising. Well, you have to remember what kind of country this is. I can't think of another country in the world where the word socialism is even controversial. Somebody's a socialist, like he's a Democrat or a Republican. The United States is off the spectrum on this. It's ideologically very tightly controlled by right-wing doctrine that includes the liberals. You can't say you're a socialist. What does socialist mean? It means New Deal liberal, New Deal Democrat. That's what socialist means. I mean, it was very striking to see the criticism of Sanders from the left liberal end of the spectrum. I'm talking now about the media, you know, so you take the more liberal media like New York Times, Washington Post, more liberal commentators, as far as they go, were saying 
uh, Sanders's proposals are reasonable, but they're too radical for Americans. Uh, what is the proposal that's too radical for Americans? Well, his main one was universal health care. Take a look around the world. Can you find a country that doesn't have universal health care? You have to look pretty hard. Everybody has it. Rich countries, poor countries, but it's too radical for Americans, even though Americans want it. The majority of Americans want it. Everyone else in the world has it, but it's too radical for Americans. Tells you something about the deep indoctrination that extends well to the left liberal extreme. I'll take his other proposal, for which he's widely condemned again this morning. The Democrat liberals are condemned for calling for free higher education. A couple of miles south of where I live, in Tucson, they have free higher education. It's a poor country, Mexico, good educational system. Go across the Atlantic, the best educational systems in the world are free higher education. Germany, Finland, all the ones that score highest. But for Americans, it's too radical. Incidentally, we once had it, and somehow it wasn't too radical. 1950s, we had the GI Bill of Rights, which gave free tuition, higher education, even subsidies for vast numbers of Americans who had never been going to college otherwise. It was very good for them. It was very good for the country. It was a much poorer country then. We could somehow afford it but now it's too radical for Americans. I mean, all of this is part of the shift that's taken place since the 70s, not only in policy and economics under the neoliberal assault, but also in ideology and uh, perception. I, I think I remember Clinton once saying that he was actually a moderate Republican. Well, it's basically correct. Uh, he was a, what used to be a moderate Republican. The Republicans have gone off into outer space. That's what's happened in the elite culture, not the general society. Like uh, people of your generation, it's not true. Even among young Republicans, a much higher percentage recognize the dangers of destroying the atmosphere and similarly on other topics. But there is a break. You said something that I want to quote, which is, these ideas as written about in the New York Times or the Washington Post, presented by a Bernie Sanders or an AOC or who, whoever is putting these forth, they are reasonable, but they are radical for Americans. Walk me through that disconnect. They are reasonable, but they are radical. Am I, am I missing something here? They're radical in the sense that elite American culture and a lot of popular culture has drifted very far to the right. I mean, if you take a look at international comparisons of political parties, the Democrats are ranked along the centrist parties in Europe. The Republicans are ranked alongside the far-right parties with neo-fascist origins. Now, if you look at people's actual attitudes, it's pretty different. So when people are asked, 
do you think everyone should have access to health care? Very high percentages are in favor of it. Even the state of Pennsylvania asked about fracking most of the populations against it because of the effects. But it doesn't show up. Now, take this uh, county in South Texas that I was talking about. Let's say the NPR analyst was correct. He probably was. Said the reason is the economy there is based on oil. And you can't come to people and say, destroy your, your businesses, your lives, your homes, because some rich elites say there's going to be a disaster in 20 years. Well, there was a way to counter that, but the Democrats wouldn't do it. It doesn't fit their programs. The way to counter it is by massive, large-scale, serious educational programs showing the people in the oil countries in South Texas that there's a much better life for you with the Green New Deal, which will preserve a life for your children and grandchildren, offer you better jobs, better communities, and better life altogether. That's what the Green New Deal offers. But if you don't tell people, and not just say, give them the words, but work on the ground to make it clear that they understand it, you're going to lose. Same on defunding the police. If it's just a slogan, it's going to immediately be interpreted as, okay, take the police out of my rich suburb and let the black looters come in. What you have to do is work on the ground to explain that defund the police means something that you want and that the police want. That means turning over much of police activity, which doesn't belong to the police, turning it over to social services who can handle it, community support groups. Police shouldn't be involved in domestic disputes, in uh, overdoses, in mental health problems. That's most of what they do, and it's not what they should do. These are all things that should be done by community service organizations that are fitted for it. You know, it doesn't make sense to say get rid of the police. And, but if you don't make the effort to explain what the term means, and it means effort, not just a couple of words, you're going to lose. That's what organizing is about, has to go on. That's why for the left, elections were a minor interlude. The real work is the constant education and organizing, so people understand what you're talking about. Take, say, universal health care. I mean, I lived most of my life in Massachusetts, liberal state. There were constant referendums called to institute universal health care. And the course of the referendums was very interesting to watch. At first, they had overwhelming support. Yeah, of course, we should have universal health care. Then the corporate lobbying began. You try these programs are going to bankrupt you. They're going to cost too much money, tens of trillions of dollars. Your taxes will go way up. They'll be destroyed. Gradually, you can see the support for universal health care declining. Nobody was coming through and not just saying, but getting people to understand that, yes, your taxes will go up and your bills will go down far more. You'll pay half as much out of your pocket 
but instead of going to insurance companies, it'll go to the common good, okay? Which is what taxes ought to be in a democratic society. You got to get that message across. You heard it during the Sanders campaign. Every time he proposed universal health care, he got screaming about $30 trillion in taxes. How much did you hear about the fact that you'll pay half of what you pay now out of your pocket, but it won't go to enrich insurance companies. It'll go for medical care. You can't just say that to people. You have to get them to understand it. That's what real politics is about. It's not about showing up on election day. I'm thinking back now to your book, Manufacturing Consent. With these liberal policies that we're talking about, do you think beyond education, that it's just a branding issue? That's our culture, which thinks of everything as branding. But that's not what's needed. What's Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. 
Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. Needed is getting people to understand the world in which they live. It's not a matter of trying to brainwash them with better slogans, but becoming educated and understanding the working class can and does understand when the issues are laid out in a way that reaches their lives, the things that are significant and so on. But that's a day-after-day activity. That means working in your neighborhood, in your community, nationally, internationally, because these are all international issues, at every level, constant daily work of organizing and activism. Now, a lot of this used to come out of the labor unions. I'm old enough to remember the 30s. My family was mostly uneducated working class. A lot of them never went past elementary school, but they were very educated, politically alive. A lot of it came from things like workers' education programs, organizing activities in the unions. Uh, political party activism, was part of life. Uh, Reagan, also Thatcher, understood very well when they launched the neoliberal assault that the first thing they have to do is destroy labor unions. You look back, their first acts were to try to destroy the labor movement. When the government started, corporations picked it up. Clinton accelerated it. One of the immediate, obvious, predicted consequences of NAFTA was would undermine labor organizing in the United States, as in fact it did. Employers were able to break organizing efforts by threatening to move jobs to Mexico. Happens to be illegal, but when you have a criminal state, there's no problem with illegal activities. So it wasn't prosecuted. National Labor Relations Board just looked somewhere else. That's Clinton, the most liberal you can get. Take Obama. It's very striking. Obama came into office with very nice rhetoric, hope, change, uh, everything will be different. What did the liberals do? They went home. We can trust our leader. He had control of Congress for two years. So what did our leader do? He betrayed the working class the poor, the middle class. Uh, Remember, it was the middle of the housing and financial crisis. 
So there was a Congress legislated uh, bailout. It had two parts. One was pay off the perpetrators of the crisis, the banks who had sold subprime mortgages knowing that they were fraud. So they were in trouble, so bail them out. The other half of the legislation was give aid and support to the victims, the people whose homes were foreclosed, who lost everything, to do something to help them. The second part was barely even ridiculed, just totally thrown out. We'll bail out the perpetrators, but not the victims. Well, people may not have read the small print, but they could see what happened. And that was only one part of it. The betrayal was immediate and total. The working people who voted for Obama switched to Trump. Do you blame them? Throughout Vice President Biden's campaign, he has pledged to help and support the working class people you're talking about. In fact, it has been central to his campaign. Is there any part of you that believes he will rise to his promises? That's up to you. The question is whether the progressive elements, mostly the young ones, will make the same mistake they made in 2008. Trust the leader. You trust the leader, he'll go off to where the money and the power is, just as Obama did. Keep his feet to the flames, be different. Um, There are possibilities with the Biden Democrats. He he himself is kind of an empty shell, could be pushed in one or another direction. The DNC, Democratic National Committee, Clintonite, donor-oriented, they're going to be pulling to the right. If there's no other pressures, that's where it'll go. Since we are speaking of history and thinking about 2008, I want to go back to what happened Thursday night as President Trump made a speech in front of the American people. Good evening. I'd like to provide the American people with an update on our efforts to protect the integrity of our very important 2020 election. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. If you count the votes that came in late, we're looking at them very strongly. But a lot of votes came in late. From a historical perspective, what did you make of that speech? I mean, the speech was so outlandish that even the conservative commentators condemned it. The major media actually didn't broadcast parts of it because it was too crazy. Even at Fox News, they weren't just echoing it the way they usually do. But what this tells us is what we already knew. Trump scored an amazing victory, even by appearing for the election, considering what had just happened. Just even considering the fact that he had just killed tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans. Forget all the rest. Forget racing to cataclysm on the environment. Huge increase in producing the dangerous arms which may destroy us, tearing to shreds the arms control regime. Forget all about that. How can a candidate show up saying, I just killed tens or hundreds of thousands of you, vote for me? I mean, the very fact that this can happen 
is an extraordinary victory. Another thing we know about Trump is he's not going to give up. He's not going to concede. He cannot accept defeat. Psychologically impossible and a little dangerous for his personal life. We don't know the details, but if he loses presidential immunity, he may be in serious trouble. Now that aside, it's just a psychological impossibility. So he'll pull out all the stops to try to prevent it. Now he has uh, another couple of months in office, no matter how it turns out, he could go berserk. We don't know what he would do. It's unpredictable. What's predictable is he won't accept it. The Republican Party, which is just turned into a group of groveling psychophants and not a party anymore, they'll back him to the limit. He's got groups of corporate lawyers who have been working for months to try to figure out ways to undermine the election. So they're hard at work. Some of the, what they've been doing is so ludicrous that when it's reached the courts, it's been dismissed with ridicule, even by conservative judges, but they'll keep at it. There's a lot you can do in the so-called legal system with uh, plenty of money, huge low, big law firms uh, to try to muddy the waters. They've been described paths that might be followed to undermine the election. I don't expect it, but it's not impossible that on January 20th, there will be two candidates claiming the presidency and the military will have to step in the way it happens in the kind of tin pot dictatorship that Trump is driving to. Twice you've said that you can't believe someone like President Trump, who's cost tens of thousands of lives as a result of the pandemic, you can't believe that he received so much support. And I'm curious for you at this stage in your life, how you've tried to understand this year with over 240,000 Americans dead and the kind of intermittent apathy that we have seen across this country. Lots of people who claim to speak of civil liberties and, and individual freedom, that that is more important than human life. Well, how about that argument, individual freedom? Uh, do you have the freedom to run around at a shopping mall with an assault rifle shooting randomly? Is that freedom? Does anybody think that's freedom? Even the most extreme uh, so-called libertarian, nobody thinks that's freedom. Well, what does it mean to run around the shopping mall without a mask? It's the same as shooting off an assault rifle. There's no freedom to do that under any conception of freedom, none. But who's pointing it out? If that's all they hear, they say, yes, I want my freedom. Get the government out of my hair. That's all they hear, yes. That's what organizing and education is about. Not just saying the words over somebody's blog, but out there constantly organizing, bringing people to understand what's in front of their nose. What I just said is not hard to understand. Any 10-year-old can understand it immediately. But if you don't hear it, you don't understand it. Just as if all you hear from 
Fox News, uh, Rush Limbaugh is, uh, it's all fraud. Uh, the Chinese are trying to undermine our president. The scientists are all liars. If that's all you hear, yes, if that's all you hear, it'll sink in. That's the failure of the left to organize and educate. Of course, the Democratic Party, but you don't expect it from them. As someone who has spent a lifetime studying the ebbs and flows of various civilizations, this pandemic, has it shaken your faith in people and people's decency? It's quite the contrary. What we've seen all over the world in countries like the United States and Brazil, where the governments are escalating the crisis. What we've seen is the growth of mutual aid, mutual support, people going way out of the way to help one another. Poor neighborhood where people are self-organizing to bring food to some elderly person stuck in an apartment somewhere. We're seeing this everywhere. It's remarkable in many places. Let's take Brazil where there's a clone of Trump in office. In Rio, in the favelas, hideous slums, miserable places. The government, of course, is doing nothing. But the slums, the favelas are being organized. They're being organized by groups who are trying to provide a little bit of water to people who don't have running water, to try to do at least minimal health services where people are all jammed together. Who's doing it? The crime gangs that have been terrorizing the slums. They're the ones who moved in to do it. Others are doing it on their own. I think what it's bringing out is people's fundamental decency. Even when it's beaten out of them day after day, beaten out of their heads by lies and propaganda, and not countered, the crime gangs and are not being organized by left activists. It's their job to do it, our job to do it. We fail to do it, you get these results. In October of this year, you were giving an interview in The New Yorker, and you said, to tell you the truth, while I'm giving interviews and talking about things, one part of my mind is working on technical problems, which are much more interesting. Well, technical is a funny word. They probably shouldn't have used it. <laughs> They're problems, fundamental scientific issues. In my case, about the nature of human beings and their cognitive capacities, uh, crucially questions of the nature of language, the distinctive feature of humans, species property common to humans, nothing remotely analogous in the animal world. What's its nature? Where did it come from? How does it work? How is it possible that we are able to do the kind of thing we're doing, whereas the animals who happen to be sleeping at my feet can pick out a couple of sounds and race to the door, but can't do what we're doing? Why is that? That's a problem that's serious. And yes, it's always in the back of my mind. I want to know, as an American in this country, in this odd election week. What are you most proud of? And what are you most ashamed of? I don't look at things that way. 
there are things that have been achieved, there have been failures. We should look back at them, see how the advances were made, where the failures were, try to compensate for them. The big failure is education and organizing. Failure to reverse the 40 years of neoliberal attacks, which have had extremely harmful effects, and the failure to move on to a much better society and culture that is achievable, far better. It's not a matter of going back to wonderful days of the 50s and 60s. They were anything but wonderful. They were awful in many ways. In fact, we've progressed beyond them. But go on. There's plenty of potential, plenty of hope. Has to be grasped. Hasn't been done enough. That's a failure. The very fact that this election took place the way it did is a sign of immense failure. As I said at the beginning, we knew the outcome of the election before election day it was an enormous victory for Trump. Just the fact that he could appear is an enormous victory and a sign of how much has to be done. Well, we have a lot of work to do. And on the subject of hope, I want to thank you for even in this sort of bleak week that we've had, you've engendered some hope in me and I think other people listening. So I appreciate you for all that you've done and continue to do. And I thank you for your time. Thank you very much and good luck. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Professor Noam Chomsky. For those of you looking for a microphone update, I know there are some of you out there. Yes, he still has my microphone. No, he didn't use it for this episode, and I still have no idea if this microphone will ever make its way back to me. But what the hell? Biden won, Harris is our VP, I'm in a giving mood, so... Let's just call it a parting gift for coming on this podcast twice. Gnome, if you're listening, <laughs> the microphone is yours. To learn more about our show, visit www.talkeasypod.com. For more conversations, I check out past episodes with Dr. Cornell West, Representative Ilhan Omar, Beto O'Rourke, Gloria Steinem, and many, many more. You can find all of those on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon, wherever you do your listening. Be sure to give us a follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, you can drop me a line at sam at TalkEasyPod.com. As always, this independently operated podcast would not be possible without our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our illustrations are by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our assistant editors are Joshua Siegel, David Harding, and Kevin Kaur. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Marketing by Patrice Lee. 
Our interns are Juliana Rector, Grace Perkins, and Ian Simmons. Graphics by Derek Gamberzak and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. God bless Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. We have a lot of work to do in this country, but for right now, a song for you and yours. It's a family favorite in the Fragoso household. Stay safe and so long. It's all you, Stevie.
The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.